Hello, and welcome to part two of our discussion on phonics. I'm Sarah Ramsey. I'm Ingrid Massey. And I'm Toby Thompson. So the next question that we're going to answer is, how do you teach phonics to struggling readers? What are your thoughts, ladies? It's a great question. It is a great question. I think the, the simple answer is, you teach phonics to struggling readers exactly the same way you teach phonics to non-struggling readers. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, the they struggle they need something different. They just yeah. need something different. They need more opportunities, lots of repetition, lots of opportunities to practice. Um, our struggling readers just take a little bit longer to get it. It's not to say that they won't get it, but. Um, you know, if something isn't working the way we're doing it, we have to change the way we're doing it. Give them uh, a different, um, a different manipulative, or just mm -hmm. a different way of approaching it or thinking about it. And and a lot of times, I think we have to remember we look at our informal assessments. So our our mm -hmm. those computer standard standardized assessment assessments aren't going to tell you where your students exactly. are struggling in phonics. So you get out an informal assessment, phonics assessment, and you find where on the continuum they are, where are their holes. And sometimes they'll have holes that are back a little ways. Like a lot of times students just, uh, you know, we all know working with struggling readers, it's usually vowels. Mm -hmm. So they can have their blends and diagraphs and maybe they're missing short vowels still. And so you go back, you work on that. It kind of gives you a direction um, to go. And so I would say informal assessment, make sure you know where they are on the continuum so you know where to pinpoint their instruction. But you're absolutely right, Ingrid. It Really, if you think back to the five non-negotiables, phonemic awareness, phonics, comprehension, vocabulary, fluency, and then... I noticed in a lot of countries, not necessarily in the U.S., but like in other countries, they've added oral language to that mix. Mm -hmm. And um, so think about if they haven't had the chance to practice their oral language and connecting to that, their phonemic awareness and playing with sounds, mm. then their phonics instruction needs to be sound and repetition heavy. And that's all. That's what you were saying. We just need more of the exact same thing, more opportunities to get that practice that other kids who are not struggling have probably already had. And that's, you know, and that's if we're talking about your traditional sort of view of the struggling reader, not someone who's dealing with, you know, uh, LD or dyslexia or things like that. That's, you know. And, and even with dyslexia, it's still very much the same thing. It's still more and more explicit, more systematic. So, Right, and more chances for, mm -hmm. for practice. For practice to make that connection. Well, you both said just exactly what I had got at the end of my Well, the my great, response. but you know what's great about that is I think that it, teachers were always so busy. What's great to know and to assure other teachers coming behind you is like, guys, it, it's not new. You don't have to come up with something new or different. You just are doing more of that thing, right? If a child is struggling to talk, you give them more opportunities mm -hmm. to talk and mm -hmm. to have conversations. Um, and the work's not all on you. You can provide them with the games and the activities to play and just play them with them so that they get that, they can build that phonics connection that they need to build. And I'm glad you brought up oral language. We talked about this, I think that was one of our first mm -hmm. episodes when we began talking about the pillars is the importance of oral language 
in developing phonological awareness. Mm-hmm. They're also interrelated and interconnected. Absolutely. Um, and we know we have kids who come to school who haven't been exposed to great language. Um, mm-hmm. They haven't been read to, you know, as a child at home. They maybe haven't been to preschool. There's any number of things, you know, that can be interfering with that. So we have to provide those opportunities to go back and fill in or make up for whatever isn't there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if those are our struggling readers, then we just have to find out what's missing and go back and and get it in there. Yeah. Uh, I think, too, the more I think about, like, the phonological processor and the orthographic processor, so sounds and mapping those onto graphemes or letter letters or letter combinations it just reinforces to me the need to add in writing to mm-hmm. and not writing necessarily sentences or paragraphs but writing the words that the students are studying so if they are counting the sounds and then writing you know mapping those sounds onto the graphemes then have them write the whole word so say for example the word is sheep and they say sheep those three sounds then do sh, sh says sh what what do we think that vowel combination is there you know talk through that ep and then have them write s h e e p to practice that again and to reinforce that i think again they need to practice the oral language side like we were talking about but let's not leave out that that writing side that's going to code it in there even more strongly and make that triangle connection that you have to make to, to map sounds onto print. So, yeah, I you think know, that's what I mean. always say that um, I, I had a much greater memory, I think, as a child before I learned how to read because, you know, when you don't know how to read and you can't map those sounds to graphemes, you're relying so heavily on your memory. Mm-hmm. But once you have that, it's almost like, oh, I don't have to remember because I can just go back and read it again. <laughs> right. Um, I feel like, you it know. It frees up that cognitive space. It does space. It up. Mm-hmm. yeah. But... Which is exactly the whole purpose. Point. Yeah, the whole <laughs> yeah. purpose is that all of that, you know, that other side of Scarborough's reading rope, background knowledge and vocabulary and all that stuff, making meaning from text is freed up or that your your cognitive load is freed up when you know how to decode really easily and well and confidently and fluently so that you can then mm-hmm. put your mind to the to the, to the real task of reading which is to make meaning from that text so well and one thing i think we need to clarify too is workbook pages worksheets mm-hmm. are not going yeah it's not be, enough practice it's not enough practice worksheets are if, if you know it, you can do it pretty easily. If you don't know it, you're going to struggle. So a worksheet is not the best way to introduce and reinforce phonics skills. And think about even the way worksheets are set up. A lot of times it's three or four different skills on that page, mm-hmm. and there's only two opportunities to do whatever skill that you're practicing well, for a struggling reader who's who has a deficit in oral language or phonemic awareness, all of those things, you know, orthographic map, <laughs> two times to practice your yeah. SH sound isn't enough time. And if they don't know it, then they've practiced it incorrectly. Correctly, yeah, exactly, <laughs> twice. So then, you know, I think that's why, you know, whole group or small group instruction with whiteboards and um, manipulatives is going to 
be a much stronger way of help or of creating that connection. You know, I don't know if you did this in, because I know you taught first grade, Ingrid. Um, we used to, at our school, have math tubs where mm-hmm. there were just lots of manipulatives, mm-hmm. dice, whatever. So, you know, they may go over and add with counters or they may add with dice or they may add with, you know, whatever Cards. it was. Mm-hmm. So they used all of these different manipulatives to practice adding, but they were still practicing adding. And I think that's, we almost have to take that mindset when we're teaching uh, decoding and Mm -hmm. encoding to students is there's lots of ways to practice this, but whether it's on a whiteboard or whether it's on, you know, a digital drag and drop or whatever it is, we're still practicing blending and segmenting, blending and segmenting. You know, maybe it's just the sounds, maybe it's the, you know, we're attaching the letters, maybe we're writing the whole word, but we're still doing the same skill over and over again, just with different um, mm-hmm. manipulatives. So, um, yeah, and I think that's what you do. And I think there's one thing that we can't um, underestimate is that in order to be fluent decoders, kids have to know every letter of the alphabet mm-hmm. and every sound that each of those letters represents. Mm-hmm. Um, that has to be first and foremost. Yeah, first goal. Um, and we we may have talked about this in another episode. Um, sometimes it's hard to remember whether you've t- talked about this in class or mm-hmm. um, consulting or whatever it is. But you you know you need an like something like an alphabet arc where you're putting that alphabet in order. Those kids can name those letters. They can associate sounds with those letters. They can you know, make words and pull down those letters and make words and, and start making those connections. Um, you're right. If they don't have the sounds then and the letters corresponding to that, then I assessed struggle. yesterday two fifth grade girls from two different schools. One was from Locust Grove and one was from Keys. Right. Fifth grade now, so they would have been in second and third grade during COVID, right? Mm-hmm. Did not know all the letters of the alphabet and did not know all the sounds. Yeah. And, and you're like, well, no wonder you're struggling. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and and the teachers, you know, when they get to fifth grade, they stop assessing mm-hmm. that they expect kids to, to know, know that. that. But s- in this time right now, this little weird Bermuda mm-hmm. triangle area mm-hmm. that we're in, as far as education goes, you, you can't make that assumption. So if you're teaching older grades and your, your kiddos are struggling, that might be, something you need to assess and what a I mean what a great bell work uh quick review like Mm -hmm. we can grab the alphabet and go over um that super quickly and talk about you know hold up objects and then associate those with sounds and um use our sound walls and pull all that stuff in it it can be a quick two-minute review it doesn't even have to be anything because I think people struggle and go well then what am I supposed to do with the kids that know the alphabet They'll just do it faster. Okay. It'll be fine. <laughs> it's, it's five minutes of alphabet review. Yeah. You They'll know. be able to make some words with mm-hmm. those letters. Exactly. It's so, fine. But it's just can... like we wouldn't expect kids to um, be able to effectively and accurately do a math computation if they didn't know <laughs> that the numeral six represents six objects or mm-hmm. six of something is the same as the code that we have with the alphabetic principle that this letter represents this sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's, that's a great point to be is to go back and make sure, do we have the basics down? 
because it is a it is a code that we can crack. And if we don't know the parts of the code, and I think too, what what happens is because we all go to some form of memorization once we've um, orthographically mapped that word. Well, yeah, they can have some words memorized, and it can look like they're reading. Um, but then you're like, why does it keep breaking down? Somewhere the code isn't in. Like they don't have it mastered yet. And that's okay. We, once we know where that is, we can go fix it. But And again, like you mentioned earlier, just having that classroom assessment that you can use mm-hmm. and identify exactly what's missing and go back and teach it. Yeah. And here's the thing. You know, I taught fifth grade and fourth grade. I didn't assess uh, in I did not informally assess every single student because you know my little guy Jack who was reading you know Lord of the Rings in fifth grade I wasn't <laughs> worried I, he had the code down I knew it um, whereas there were other students that you're like okay just based on the star scores that came back or whatever I'm like I'm gonna pull these eight kids and I'm gonna assess them because that's where I'm going to see possibly see some holes that are going to be significant enough that we need to work on remediating so. Don't don't you don't think you have to do it all. <laughs> no. Okay. Anything else on that topic? Nope. Nope. But moving on, we have a <clears throat> how do you teach phonics to a non-English speaker? So how how might that be different than because a lot of times people associate non-English speaking or ELL students with struggling readers. Mm-hmm. And on the scores, the scores might look similar, but the reason they're struggling mm-hmm. is different. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I say different. It is. It has a different origin reason. They speak a different language, and so they're having to learn an entirely new alphabet. But it's not because they didn't have exposure to the alphabet and to language in their own language. It's... Um, it's because it's a completely new language. And I always say, put yourself in those people's shoes. Go ask yourself if I had to go to this country and learn an entirely new alphabet and and sound system and perhaps even some sounds that I don't my brain has pruned and I do not make anymore Mm -hmm. I do not make um what might that experience be like so it's not intelligence it is just learning a different language and what you just said is so important for us to remember we have talked about this in previous episodes but Sarah said, my brain has pruned that. Mm-hmm. Um, we now know that within the first three years of our lives, our phonology or our ability to produce sounds is dependent exclusively on the sounds that we were exposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, so you think your mother, your father, your uh, care provider, whoever that may be, the sounds that you learn to make during those formidable years are the sounds that you are able to make. Um, Now, that's not to say that you can't ever do it, but I'm sure it's going to take a lot more effort. And we find what we need, and Mm -hmm. then what we don't need just kind of goes away, and it goes along with that adage, you know, use it or lose it. And, And you really do. So... Kids um, who are learning a second language or a third language or whatever it may be, um, it it we're going to teach them the same things yes. and the same ways. Mm-hmm. We may need multiple repetitions again. We need and I also to... think they're having to contrast 
mm-hmm. what they're learning with <laughs> something they've already learned. Yes. So um, I remember working with a student who was reading Cat and was older, but when she was trying to break that word apart, the A sound, which they she she spoke Spanish in her language, she had that symbol. Mm-hmm. So you know, her brain has mapped, like, this yes. symbol says, and I believe it's very similar to ah. our short O, ah. ah. And so she was like, caught. And I'm like, we have a word in English, caught, mm-hmm. <laughs> but this is ah. And so you're, I mean, think about if my whole life this is this symbol has represented this sound, now I have to, in another language, go, now it represents an entirely different sound. And they don't have that with every every graphing correspondence, but, you know, significantly enough to where, oh, that looks a little bit different. And say you're learning an entirely different language, maybe they don't have the one-to-one correspondence mm-hmm. or the code-like co- correspondence we do. Maybe they learned it, their language was different. So they're having to change their whole mindset about how language works. And it might even be a different direction, too. Mm-hmm. Directionality oh, yeah. is such a huge concept for us to to master so then you throw in different symbols and a different order in which we read those symbols and it's another level of learning i remember i bought a book when i was uh in the middle east and i was like this book is and i was a grown woman i had taught for years (laughs) and i was like this book is backwards and the i could tell from the pictures that the book was backwards i was like somebody has printed this book incorrectly <laughs> what fools <laughs> and my and my um mom goes no <laughs> and i was like what and she goes they read from right, right to, to left. left and so i was like it's like my brain had to go hold on a second like i i felt weird to turn the pages it felt odd to like look at the other side of the book to start I mean, not that I could read any of the symbols, but I just the just to even get the story, yeah. I was having to go and look at the other side. It was like I was having to like it's like um, if you use your right hand and then you break it, and you're having to use your left. Everything's more awkward. It's not that I'm incapable. It's not that I'm not you know intelligent enough. It's like I'm having to tell my brain, you have to use this part of your body now, and it feels awkward and like you're fumbling and things like that. So I think you have to remember when you're working with those students to remind them that this isn't a mark of intelligence, and you have to remind yourself this isn't a mark of intelligence. This is someone having to possibly change an entire mindset, look at a letter that they thought said this or that did in their own language mm-hmm. say this sound, and then like it's like rewiring your entire brain. And uh that, you know, we but what's great as a reading teacher is it's what we just said. Hey, let's start with the alphabet arc again. Mm-hmm. Do you know all the names of these letters? Do you know the sounds of these letters? If you don't, that's where we can start and that will help you start to crack the code of this language. And that's, you know, and think about it. If I do an alphabet arc every day with a five-year-old who spent or who speaks a sec- English as a second language, maybe they speak Spanish, they are able to compare and contrast every time we do that alphabet ar- arc activity. I'm giving them that opportunity. If they never see those letters or hear those sounds repetitively, then they have a hard time making that connection because they're just not seeing it and hearing it enough. So we we absolutely have to make sure that you know, they get that practice. But what's great is you're like, oh, it's the same thing for my struggling readers and same thing for my English speakers. It's just more 
of the of the same and also change understanding where they're coming from right maybe they didn't have the exposure of their struggling reader or maybe they had a completely different exposure if they're in english as a second language student so well and i think one of the the um issues that we have especially in oklahoma is teachers assume that the second language the first language is going to be spanish and mm -hmm. that's not that's always true. the case so you may have students in adair county who's who have Cherokee as their first mm -hmm. language. So there's a syllabary there. There's not, not. a one-to-one -one correspondence. Yep. Um, or you have, I know when I taught in Muskogee, we had a, a big Hmong pop population. Mm -hmm. I know nothing about that language. So I had no idea how to help those students make that switch. Make that switch. Um, and then the other thing is when you're trying to assess for learning difficulties, with students who have English as a second language, it's important that you assess them in their native language first. Mm -hmm. Because if they're struggling in their native language, it's going to be harder for them mm. to pick up English. That's so true. I didn't think about that. That's so, a great point. So let's see. Can you read in this language yes. first? <laughs> the other thing that we have to take into consideration with English language learners um, is the structure of our language is going to be most likely different from the structure of their language. Mm -hmm. So again, that oral language piece is going to have to be um, present. Mm -hmm. they, they have to be fluent speakers of a language before they'll be able to be fluent readers and writers of a language. Mm -hmm. uh, so they have to understand the, the structure of our language, the rules that govern how we say things and how we put them together. Just like, you know, I know a few words in Spanish and I could probably piece them together to speak a sentence, but I don't know how the structure of the language works that, mm -hmm. you know, I just know that they don't speak them in the same order that we do in English. Right. Um, so the, the, the fluent speaking piece has to be there for whatever the language is that you're instructing them in. Um, the, the fluent speaking piece has to be there before we can expect them to be readers and writers of a language that they can't yet speak. Especially fluently. Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, they can, they might be able to piece this together, but it is going to be difficult. And then you think too, like, uh, and again, I'm not an expert in, in Spanish, but I, it's a, from what I understand, it's a very shallow orthography, mm -hmm. meaning it's a much more one-to-one -one correspondence. So when you're reading, you can sound out a word in that language even if you don't know that language fully because you um, are just reading the sounds. A lot like uh, uh, if you're in Hawaii, though it's very much like I'm saying every sound I see. Whereas in the English language, because it's a deep orthography, you know, we have, you know, several letters like TCH, mm -hmm. but they still say CH or PH it's just one sound and it's not any of those letters right there. Like it's very, you have to know that. And so there, it feels like there's more twists and turns to learning that language, even though it is predictable, you have to under you have to know what, what governs that prediction to be able to get it right. So think about if I, you know, say I come here and I've been speaking Spanish and I'm in fourth grade and I am a fluent speaker, reader, writer in that language. And all of a sudden now you're telling me that, Instead of one to one to one to one correspondence, when I read, now I've got to guess, you know, mm -hmm. or understand the three sounds or the three graphemes that govern, you know, that that make this letter combination, or you know, so 
I, it, I mean, it's tricky. You have to, but you know, you said when you were talking about the Hmong population, I didn't know anything about them. I think this is what makes teaching so interesting is that if you view it as a gift and a challenge, then you go, wow, I'm going to get to learn something that not a lot of people know or understand uh -huh, right. that's going to help me to bond with the other members of my community and understand them and their language more. I'm going to, and one thing I always say is if you take that attitude, you'll even learn how to better teach your own students who speak in the English language because you'll see things about how humans learn and how, um, you know, every culture they bring to the table something a, a real paradigm shift and an interest that you're like oh I never thought about that because in this culture this is the way things work so my brain would never even encounter that way of thinking or doing or saying or speaking so now that I've been exposed to this it's been a gift to me hopefully I'm able to help you more but also it's been a gift to me to understand that so that I, I can improve my communication and my speaking and my working with my students so you know, I say if you do have students from different, um, that speak different languages like that, you know, really invest some time to learn what you can about their language and their orthography and how it works. And like you said, it's a syllabary. It's not even, it's completely, you know, completely different. different. So, um, but, you know, what an interesting thing to be able to learn and to be able to share with that student. So, anything else? <laughs> Jinx by makeup. <laughs> uh, I, I, I said everything I had written down that I needed to say on that. Or that okay. I had at this moment in time. time that I have all to say is on that. coming out of the, <laughs> the vault. Yeah. No, I'm trying to look at my notes. I don't think I have anything more on that one. Um, you I know, we have, we have been through uh, times in our profession where phonics has kind of been a a dirty word, you know. Uh, uh, we, you know, we don't speak that. We've we've watched and we talk about it all the time. You know, we've watched the pendulum shift. Um, mm -hmm. What did the lady say, the the Texas lady at Ayler, when we were listening to her? Mm -hmm. She said they've stopped calling it balanced literacy, and now they're calling it was it explicit literacy. It was just a rephrasing. It was, I, and I don't remember the word that she used, but I felt like, you know, here at this table, the three of us had an idea of what we all, I think, agreed on was <laughs> balanced literacy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now with so much um, in the media and getting so much attention because of Emily Hanford and Natalie Wexler, um, balanced literacy has become synonymous with whole language, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. I don't think any no. of us ever thought that it was the same thing, uh, but more of a balance and an assessment-driven kind of model where we give kids what they need. And it takes all of the pillars it in order to It takes all make. of the pillars, and depending on what their strengths and needs are, the balance is going to shift. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it's even depending, you know, if you're teaching fifth grade, you're certainly not going to spend as much time on the, the PA and phonics ends of that uh, continuum. So, Because right. um, at that point, a lot of times you're just filling in holes. You're not paving the yes. whole road. 
So I did when when we were listening to the presenter from Texas talk and she mentioned balanced literacy, I feel like, um, you know, it was almost like, okay, we we aren't as far off base as we thought mm -hmm. we were. But mm -hmm. again, we're allowing this one person who has a very narrow scope of what literacy education and instruction look like um, and have allowed this person to dominate the field at this point in time. And, and I think that there are probably more of us in the profession who saw it as as we did, mm -hmm. and now it's just kind of been, you know, blown out of proportion. But, you know, I've, I've been teaching phonics <clears throat> since the 90s when I started teaching, and mm -hmm. I first learned about phonological and phonemic awareness <clears throat> in the 90s when I started teaching. Yeah. It's not... It's not new it's information. It's not something brand new. Well, and I think science of reading even points that out. They're like, guys, this isn't new information. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, I know. We were all out here doing it. <laughs> we, we, we were doing we it. We understand that fully. So, um, yeah. But I think what you realize is, just like we all realize in our schools when our students come in, they all come from different homes, mm -hmm. <coughs> different parents, different oral language. Different experiences. Experiences, you know, all the things. And I think we realize that about teachers now through these conversations where you go, oh, we thought we were doing one thing and not everybody was doing that thing. And, you know, but, you know, I love, um, I was reading a book or I've started uh, a lot of books recently, but <laughs> brain words, not finish them all, but brain words. And he was talking about, I don't even know the gentleman's name. It's escaping me, but he was talking about how, since we all, end up with words that we know by sight. He was talking about learning phonics through spelling, meaning, and I was like, well, they're really the same side. But the point that he said is, he's like, phonics isn't... Um, gentry. Is the yes. gentry spelling mm -hmm. guy, right? Well, and there was a, there's another gentleman on it, on it with him. Um, Starts with an O, I thought. Jean Willette and... Jared, yes. uh, is it Gentry. Yeah. I don't remember his name. What's funny is I didn't even remember Gentry. I was remembering Oulette. Oulette. And maybe that's because I was like, oh, it's, I think it's a French name. Anyway. Um, oui. But what I loved that he said was, he's like, we're not, he goes, whole language uh, has a lot of important things that we need to continue to bring forward with us when we're teaching reading. And he was like, and that is the love of really good text and being um, understanding that, you know, we need to have conversations around books and we need to be inundated with great, um, you know, examples of, so when we used to have a thematic unit, you would have 57 books around yes. the classroom on that thematic unit. Now, could the kids read every single one? No, but a lot of times they would sit and look at the pictures and they were picking up stuff. Now, I'm not saying that that taught them how to read. No. But what it did was interested them in the topic so that they could have conversations when we were learning in that thematic unit about whatever it is that we were studying. So if we're studying like oviparous animals, they they could have conversations about frogs or chickens. They were looking at the pictures. 
again, I never said, oh, they're learning to read as they sit over there with that giant book with pictures. But I, what I did say is they were becoming interested in that topic. Well, and the other thing that having multiple books around a topic in the mm -hmm. classroom does is it shows students that there's more than one perspective on a given topic. Mm -hmm. And yep. hopefully it helps them understand if I want to read about anything, anything yeah. I'm not going to read just one book and get one perspective. There mm -hmm. may be more information, information out, out there. there. Well, yeah. I mean, think about how many times, like, uh, my nephew is obsessed with frogs, and so he has lots of books on frogs. Well, he'll come to me and bring a new book, and he's like, did you know that there's a giant frog that's, like, the size of a dog? He's like, and it's, you know, and, but that wasn't in his first book on frogs, and that wasn't in his second book on frogs. That was on, in his book on frogs that, you know, was an alphabet book that named all these different kinds of frogs. So, you're right. He didn't learn all the information that he's acquired about that topic by reading one book. And so, there are, what I loved is he said, the war it needs to be, and I'm summarizing, basically, we need to put this war to bed. Like, both perspectives ha bring something to the table that's valuable. Now, they also bring some misconceptions and things that need to be pushed off, but they bring something to the table that we need to respect and value. And I think that's so true just about life in general, but I, I loved that he brought out because I think what people say is when they see the science of reading they go and they go like we we're talking about with the disease we have the silver bullet everything else is absolute crap and you're like <laughs> no no that's not true what they were saying is hey guys there's a hole and just because you surround children with really interesting books we still had little Teddy over here who didn't learn to read. He just was, he was obsessed with frogs and he thought it was interesting and he learned all everything because he could pick a lot of things out by pictures. But then when he got into fourth grade, he got into trouble because the reading was too much. Teddy needed more phonics and somebody in his, his teacher should have noticed that and hopefully given that to him or whoever he has now can do that. But to say, we don't need books around or we don't need to surround children or they need to only read decodable text only ever. And I'm like, anybody who thinks, and I'm sure write us if you want to. <laughs> Send your hate mail to Sarah. <laughs> um, anybody who thinks that children who are learning to read should only be exposed to text that they can decode does not understand reading in any way, shape or form in its fullness and it is shocking to me that people would say, oh, you know, I was telling Ingrid about Chet and Chip had a dog named Chuck. And I was like, that little girl who was trying to read that decodable text was like, Chet and Chip had a dog named Chuck. And they chucked the ball into the, you know, I can't even remember, it was all these CH words. And it was great for the limited five minutes that we had to practice, but it was a tongue twister. And... Here's the thing. At the end, she could answer all the questions about it. Um, but I was That's confused. Impressive. Honestly, I was confused. I was mm -hmm. like, who's Chet? Who's Chip? <laughs> and who's Chuck? Chuck. <laughs> like, you know, but she picked it up. And and that was great practice. And I, I do have decodables every time I work with students. But we also, I also know that she has a very rich home life with lots of exposure to other books. And she's constantly going to the library and picking up books that are not decodable. And she is reading them, and she is struggling through some words that she doesn't know. 
I'm like, guys, we wouldn't do that to people in real life. I mean, think about this. When I go to practice, do I only do things that my, you know, I know explicitly how to do that I can absolutely do and I've mastered? No. Learning happens in the struggle. Right. And so I'm like, they do need to not struggle so much that they give up. But yeah, I mean, how many times does a kid come up to you and go, I read this word, I like it. I did that's it. That's where the joy is. You know, that's that's some of the joy is doing something that, you know, that you didn't think you knew how to do. And so our job is to, yes, practice with the decodable so that they have that repetition that they need with the sound that they're learning. Because you certainly don't want to just teach the CH sound and then go read a book that maybe only has one CH word. They didn't get enough practice. We just talked about how they need practice. But my God, they don't only need CH. They only don't only need CH word books. Uh-huh. You know, where Chet and Chip have a dog named Chuck. You know, all day long, and they chuck the ball to Chuck, and then Chip grabs it and Chip gives it to Chet. I mean, like you're just <laughs> like, oh my gosh, guys. I mean, I'm having a hard time keeping up with who's got the ball at this point. So, um, again, has its place, but also, I mean, yeah, you just can't cannot think Which, that again, text I is think is where the balance happens mm-hmm. you know you you have to take a little bit of this and a little bit of this and find the balance that works for each individual child and you know maybe it to say to say it like this during reading instruction we have decodable text that's that is what mm-hmm. we do mm-hmm. we have decodable text and decodable words and things that they know for sure that they're going to be successful at and need practice but during math and science and all those other things, those things are not completely decodable. Mm-hmm. And when they want to get a book on frogs that doesn't have but one CH word, mm-hmm. uh, that's fine. That's fine. Go ahead and grab grab that book. And you know, because we have practiced the CH, they'll tell me like, oh, this this you know uh, frog ate a you know uh, a bug for lunch that has the ch ch sound. That's right. They're discovering it in that authentic text. So, yeah, I just, it just makes me laugh. You're like, oh, they can never read a book. And and that's what you hear. Some of these new teachers out here are like, you can only read a book if it's absolutely decodable. I'm like, during reading, during my explicit phonics reading lesson, but not in life. Like, (laughs) that's what they learn through AR. You can Mm -hmm. only read books in your ZPD range because that's Mm -hmm. the only way you're going to be successful. Right. And... You've got those teachers who will not stray from yeah, but again, reader. This is where we all we've talked about this in previous lessons. You have to kind of be a reading rebel. I'm like, if they yeah. wanted to go slightly below or above that range, I was like, have at it, yeah. friend. Because you know what, some of my favorite books to read for pleasure mm-hmm. are young adult yes. fiction. Mm-hmm. I love to read these books that are written for a much younger audience. Yeah, I just. You know, I for whatever reason that's your teacher in me, but I love to read those. Yeah, it's easy, it but it's also quite enjoyable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and and I don't I don't want to be limited on that, it's too easy for me, so I can't ever read it again. Yeah, Yeah. you know, and I think you teach them, you know, God forbid, balance. But (laughs) I I used to say you have to get one book in your CPD, Mm -hmm. and then your other book can be your choice. Sometimes it was in their ZPD. Sometimes it was slightly less. Especially my struggling readers are like, can I get this book? Because it was a favorite and they knew how to read it. Um, can you get a book that you're fluent at reading and practice fluently reading a book? Uh, 
Heck yes. Absolutely. Go for it, friend. Absolutely. Or I'm really interested in this topic. Can I get this book even though I know for sure that it's probably a little bit difficult? Uh, yeah, friend, mm-hmm. you can. Because that's real life. You know, how many times have we gone into a class or, or you know, something, read a book where we're like, man, I'm having to read this a couple of times. Mm-hmm. If they never learn to struggle with a book like that, then what? No. I'm like, talk about helicopter parenting for reading. And, and they like, no. usually figure out pretty quickly if something's too hard for them. Mm-hmm. You know, it, they can police that themselves That's what most the Goldilocks the strategy is yeah. for. The, mm-hmm. You know, hold up your hand. If you read a page and there are five words on that page that you do not know, if all your fingers went up as you were reading that page, too hard. Too hard. Put it back, friend. You know, or <clears throat> sometimes they'd be like, but I really want to read it. And you know what I said? Go okay. for it. <laughs> and you know what? Two days later, I'd see him come back in and like, can I change this book? They learn to govern themselves mm-hmm. and make choices. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, mm-hmm, you can. So, yeah, I think we've we've made that too. You know, again, there's not a silver bullet. No. So For anything. No yeah. magic wand. Yeah. So if I have high blood pressure, people are like, well, if I take this pill, it'll fix it. I'm like... But or if you it, just quit eating salt, it'll fix it. Or or lose weight, or yeah. take a walk, or learn to manage your stress. There's <laughs> 50 reasons why you might have high blood pressure. You might have a propensity because, you know, genetically you might. It, so to go, this one pill is going to fix it, but that's the way we think. What's the one pill that's easy and that I can fix it with the least amount of work? And I'm like, no. That's mm-hmm. why those the weight loss pills are so fly off the shelves mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. If I take this one pill, yeah. and I'm going to tell y'all from experience, it, it does work. not work. There's not one. No. Save your money. <laughs> don't buy the vitamins. <laughs> buy books instead. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> anything else we want to discuss today, ladies? We do have a couple more questions if you want, or we can save them. Like, for example, I'll just go run through them. Uh, how do you keep students who are bored easily engaged in teaching phonics? How do you stop children from putting uh at the end of the letter sound? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good I think one. that's a great, those are great question. I think those both two are. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think they're easy to answer, too. Keeping <laughs> them from being bored, that's when you use your manipulatives. That's mm-hmm. when you make it interesting for them. I yeah. mean, you don't use worksheets. No. No. Movement, and, active engagement. And if you're teaching them something that is an appropriate concept or skill for them to be learning at that time, not too easy, not too hard, they're probably going to be engaged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, in fact, that's on the, the notes is if it's too hard, they'll give up. If it's too easy, they'll get bored. So mm-hmm. if they're bored, um, you know, you need to make sure that you've got their CPD. But also, is it hands-on? Mm-hmm. Are they up and moving? You know, all those sorts of things. If they are, then most likely they're going to stay engaged. And if they, if all of those things are being done and they're not engaged, they're bored, something else is going on. Right. That's not just a, that's not a phonics problem. Yeah. <laughs> that's something's going on in their life. Um, and then how do you stop children from putting up at the end of a letter? You teach it to them the right way. First, we have to have <laughs> teachers stop putting the uh right. at the end of the sound. It's not buh. Buh. a buh. E. But A, but E. <laughs> Maybe that is how we Maybe say that. it here in Oklahoma. I had a but A, but E. <laughs> like, so you have to teach them, like, I always say clip the sound. Clip, the sound. Yeah. clip it. And so, uh, and then also, if you know, think about when you're, well, I say think about how you make it. Sometimes that's not always the great 
thing, but there are lots of videos, especially with the science of reading. If you say how to make the 44 sounds of the English language, there's like 800 videos of how to make them. <laughs> but like the L sound, this happens a lot. La, la, la. And I'm like, it's, oh, leave that tongue behind your teeth. And uh, honestly, what happened was my kids kept saying la, la. And so I just was like, how do I say it? Oh, and even before, you know, Moats or anybody came around and told me, I was just like, oh, I just, and I was just, I used to say, leave your tongue, mm -hmm. don't let it drop, oh, and then they learned it and we all moved on. Again, I didn't need four years of training in linguistics no, to be able to tell them that. And sometimes that is where the mirror comes in happy, uh -huh. uh, handy if the kids don't know, okay, what does that look like? Because, yeah. you know, we do it so automatically. Sometimes it's hard to put into words, um where our tongues fall in our mouths but right. if they can see it and watch it and and hear it yeah then they can you know and there's a lot of videos on that as well if you're like okay i don't want to have to experiment some people like to do that but if you don't there are videos that will explain to you where all the sounds are made in your mouth and why they make them one thing i didn't know i always knew for example that my kids when they did am and and like that sound got real mm -hmm. odd to me and I never actually had a kid ask, but I wondered. I was like, why does it go from, like, you know, p, a, m, and then it's like, p, am. <laughs> and then when I took, so I had some more training, somebody was like, oh, m and n are nasal, so they're mm -hmm. taking that a, and they're, when you go to make the m, they're, you know, making it, make that nasally sound. I was like, oh. Someone, someone I used... wondered why it wasn't like <laughs> pat or, yeah. you know, any of the other ones. Someone used the term whiny sounds or whiny mm. letters because yeah. they do kind of come through the nose and it's so hard to segment those sounds apart because they're, um, I guess, continuous. The nasal mm -hmm. sounds, they flow together more. So. Yeah. And it is helpful, like, to tweak little things. You know, you're not a speech pathologist, but when you're a teacher, especially working with young kids, if they have speech issues, it's nice to be able to go, oh, you do this or you mm -hmm. do that. That's how you fix that problem. Um, so... But again, that goes back to what we're talking about with the ELL students. You know, that's an opportunity to get on and, you know, just Google, like, what what is going on with this? And usually there's some quick video some that where you can find someone explaining it. And uh, teachers are doing a great job today, I feel like, putting that information out there, sharing it on blogs, and they're oh making great YouTube videos that explain it. I have really been impressed. So many good things that are free. They're mm -hmm. just right there. You just have to search for them. Yeah. You have to know the right words, you know, and that's mm -hmm. why continue to grow and learn and read yourself. But, uh, yeah, I mean, if you just put, how do I make the 44 sounds of the English language? Some teacher has put together a video for you. And, and God bless great. her. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Or him. That's or right. Him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and then and we have some more, but we might want to save this for another day. Another day. I or do you, or we may, phonics may be at an end. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Okay. Let's stop there for today. And we'll catch you next time on That's, That's Why, why we, we Read. read.